creative journey It's easy to get lost But don't worry, you'll lift off Sometimes you just need a creative pep talk Hey, you're listening to the Creative Pep Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Andy J. Pizza. Do you ever just feel like your only option for sanity in your creative practice is to just finally accept that you don't have it, whatever it is, like the creative magic that made you fall in love with creativity or art or whatever it is you make, that creative magic of your heroes that got you to say yes to this creative journey, ironically is the same thing that's making you want to walk away from it all because you just can't create the kind of creative magic that you love in other people's work. If that is you, this episode is for you. We're going to talk about unlocking your own creative magic in your work and doing so by tapping into what I call your creative sensibility. And I'll explain what I mean by that particular phrase in this episode. If that's you, let's go. This episode is supported by In The Making, an original podcast brought to you by Adobe Express, the all-in-one content creation app included in your Creative Cloud membership. If you are trying to boost the YouTube, TikTok, Reels content side of what you're doing, one episode of In The Making that I think will be super useful to you is their episode with John Yushai. I think John's method for including his audience in the process is really inspiring. And if you want to hear about that and more about leveling up your game in the creator economy, just search In The Making in your podcast player to listen. Many thanks to In The Making and Adobe Express for their support. I really needed to rehaul my website. I was talking to some web people, looking around, and I got intrigued by Squarespace's new Fluid Engine, partially because it just sounds cool, but also because it allows you to drag and resize and layer up anything you can imagine. I dove in, rebuilt my site, It's the most me site that I've ever had. I just absolutely love it. Launched it, got such a great response. Some industry illustration and designy peers even reached out and was like, hey, who coded this thing, man? I'm like, y'all, I did it by myself. No coding with Squarespace's new Fluid Engine. I told him like, you should go check it out. You're gonna be surprised with what you can do. And I built this thing before Squarespace reached out to sponsor the show. So I was like, boom, easy peasy. I was gonna tell you about this new site anyway. Go check it out, antijpizza.com if you wanna see what I did with it. If you want to try it yourself, make a site that's totally you, where you can build a portfolio, sell content and courses and all kinds of other stuff, head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain with promo code PEPTALK, all one word, all uppercase. Chapter one, put down the magic wand and pick up the creative lab coat. So for me, the first step of me kind of stumbling into creative work that felt more magical, uh, you know, stumbled into creating work that felt more magical was actually to redefine how I thought about creativity and kind of stop looking at it as magic at all. You know, I grew up in a place where uh, there was a, a lot of spiritualizing of everything and a lot of magical thinking that was pretty much the norm. And, you know, it makes sense that I would spiritualize creativity. I think a lot of people do it. I actually think there's a lot of great things about it. I think there's a lot of truth to it. Like I haven't completely divorced myself <laughs> from uh, spiritual thinking or even magical thinking. Like the more you learn about the universe, the weirder of a place this is. And art has to do with consciousness. And the more that you learn about consciousness, the wilder that whole experience really is. Like I'm not 
saying that creativity doesn't have a component that is somehow otherworldly because I really do think it is. I just feel as if that line of thinking can only take you so far as a creative practitioner. And, and that line of thinking has gotten tons of play in the creative community. And it may be time to balance out that magical thinking with a more scientific mind or a more scientific approach to your creative process. It has been really beneficial to me. You know, growing up as a teenager, as I was discovering the work that made me want to make creative stuff, I remember it feeling like a spiritual experience. Like I remember the first time I heard the band Seeger Ross, Seeger Ross. I can't say it. I'm from Southern Indiana. Okay. I, I don't know how to say that properly, but I remember getting that uh, driving to Best Buy, getting the CD, putting it in my car stereo, and just feeling like I was transported into another universe. You know, it was it was this heart-stopping, awe-inspiring experience. And I remember the sick day that I had in college where I stumbled upon the movie Spirited Away by one of my now creative heroes, Hayao Miyazaki, and just feeling like I had, like, walked in straight into with my full conscious mind into the subconscious or the collective conscious of mankind, man. It was like this trippy, otherworldly, nonsensical experience that made more sense than anything that I'd ever experienced in real life. And it was just this, you know, heart stopping kind of experience and I had so many more of those. Like uh, there was a time in college where I was in London and I found illustrator Mike Perry's book on hand lettering, which I'm not going to mention in case there's small children about. The name is kind of an inappropriate. But I remember I can think back to getting on that train to go back up to the north of England where I lived at the time and just feeling like I had found a magic book of spells. Like it just felt like nothing's ever going to be the same and nothing ever was like that is the magical power of creativity. You have these before and after life defining moments when you stumble upon stuff like that. And it, it, it's completely incredible. But, you know, looking back at past Andy, I kind of feel like a dad to myself now and my son just saw my son. I love calling my past me my son. Now listen up, buddy. Uh, I know you love that magic show, uh, but I also feel this conflict where past me goes and sees these creative magicians putting on the most awe-inspiring, life-defining, heart-stopping tricks, and he's just mesmerized. He's like, "Oh my gosh, this is." What is this sorcery? And I'm kind of stuck because I'm like, on one hand, he, he's enjoying it so much. I don't want to be like, well, actually, son, the way that these magicians pull off these tricks isn't actual magic. Like it's, it's an illusion. It's a trick. It's, it's chemistry with the brain. Like I, but I don't want to spoil it for him. But ultimately, I know the only shot this kid has in recreating the kind of magic that is pulling at his soul is to break the illusion. Like the only way he's going to go out there and create, recreate that kind of magic is if he accepts that magic is not real and that there are actual things that you can do, actual tricks, actual illusions, actual science that will allow him to participate in this thing that he's obsessed with. And so I feel a little bit like that making this episode because to me, creativity, it, there is a spiritual component. There is a, a soul component. There is a magical component, but it wasn't until I took, I put the magic wand down and picked up the creative lab coat and goggles and, and get your Bunsen burners out. Beaker, we're going into this. It wasn't until that that I actually started to 
it wasn't until I quit thinking of creativity as magical that I actually was able to just get started on making some creative magic of my own. And so if you are ready to demystify it a little bit and approach it a little bit more with a scientific mind that sees creativity as a kind of like chemistry where the chemicals you're putting into other people's brains, the sounds, the smells, the taste, the, the, the images, like all of those are just elements that you're throwing into that mad science uh, Bunsen burner beaker situation of somebody's brain. Like it's, it's a chemical reaction. If you're in a place where you're ready to cross over, this episode is for you. You know, some people have too much respect for the creative process to demystify it. You know, there are, there are, there are creative consumers or passive creators that refuse to ever demystify the creativity of their heroes because they don't want to pull it apart and ruin it. And and I get that. And I couldn't respect that anymore. You know, there's a purity and love for art that comes with that line of thinking. But I remember hearing one of my favorite creators of all time. I just, I'm such a student of Brian McDonald. You've heard me talk about him a million times. He's a story expert. And he talks about how, demystifying story and deconstructing how movies get made there there is a thing that gets lost in that process and it kind of reminds me of you know one of those magical creators in my life was Isaac Brock the lead singer of Modest Mouse and I don't think I've ever told this story on the show but I got obsessed with Modest Mouse in high school you know, any longtime listeners are like, you've told us that <laughs> before. No, there's another piece to it. Uh, I got obsessed with Modest Mouse in high school. They were really like the tornado that took me to Oz of creativity. And it was it, it was as if it was like a, a, a yellow brick road just plopped out of the sky. And I just started walking down that path. And I got into all this alternative culture and band posters and all this stuff. And it just opened the world up for me. But when I went to my first Modest Mouse concert. I actually, on the way down, ran into an acquaintance of mine from high school who, her name's Liv, and she was so much cooler and probably is still cooler (laughs) than I am today. She was listening to like way noisier stuff than I ever got into. And uh, she's like, hey, oh, you're going to the Modest Mouse show. Uh, Me and my boyfriend are going too. His cousin is actually best friends with Isaac Brock who's the lead singer of Modest Mouse. And I was like, what the heck? And he's, and she was like, uh, we're actually going to the Waffle House near the venue afterwards if you want to stop by and say hi. And I was like, oh my gosh. I was like freaking out. My you know, heart was pounding. We went to the show. It was incredible. I think I probably have permanent <laughs> hearing uh, damage from that experience, actually. Um, it was a show in like a a big high school gym, I think, if I remember correctly. And afterwards, we went to Waffle House, sat around doing what teenagers do at Waffle House at midnight. And uh, right when we're about to leave, they walk in. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is intense. And I'm thinking, I can probably muster like a great show, man, and walk out as I'm like trembling. And so I try to pull that off, but Liv's like, no, come here. And I'm like, oh God. And she's like, tell Isaac about how obsessed you are with this band or something like that. And I was like, oh man, this guy, if you don't know Modest Mouse, Isaac Brock is uh, an incredible creator, but he's also got a lot of sarcasm, biting wit, he, you know, he gets angry in his music, like a, a portion of his music is barking kind of. And, uh, and I was scared. I was like, oh man, this guy's going to tear me to shreds for being such a dweeb fanboy. But he was just like, uh, thanks man. And I was like, oh, and I was just blown away. But the, the thing that happened from that experience, I think that was really a serious call to adventure kind of meeting of the mentor thing that pushed me over the threshold of, you know, believing that I could be an artist because they say like, don't meet your creative heroes 
By the way, I'm going to come back to Brian McDonald in a second. I know I left that thread open. Apologies for that. But they say don't meet your creative heroes because you're going to realize that they're not they're not go- the gods that you think that they are. And that is true. You know, the thing that stood out to me in that moment was he looked like such a normal person and he talked like a normal person and he looked and he, you know, he's the stature of a normal person. And I remember just having this like limit disappear from my mind of like, there is no difference between me and this person that I, you know, who's on these records that I love. And I remember hearing Brian McDonald talk about like when you deconstruct story and you start understanding how these creative heroes make their magic, there is a thing that you lose. You lose that idol in your mind of this this otherworldly supernatural creative god. And, and you do lose that. Like the magic show ceases to be completely magical at that point. But what you gain is so much greater than that. And I don't remember if he said this, I couldn't find the quote, or if this was just kind of my elaboration on it. Uh, but when I met Isaac Brock, I feel, I feel like, yes, there was a death of a creative God in my pantheon. Like he was no longer this otherworldly thing. Uh, I lost that creative God, but I found my own creative divine spark you know, divine creative spark in me because I realized I have the same things that this person has. This is just a human. And you gain so much more if you will recognize your own potential for creative magic when you realize it's all just human. Chapter two, embrace the chemistry. I think we're living through a really fascinating time in terms of being an artist because we're learning so much about what it deals with, which is kind of like a, a, the chemistry of consciousness and how what happens when you put stuff into a human brain. There's that really famous quote by Arthur C. Clarke that says any sufficiently advanced technology will appear as magic or or something like that. And of course, the most sophisticated technology we currently have in this moment is the human brain. Yes, AI can compute so much faster, but we understand AI. We built it. We still don't understand how the heck... The, the neurons in our head produce this sensation of being human and being alive and, and how it does what it's able to do and how it's able to store what it's able to store and feel what it's able to feel and, and how creative work or, or stimulus of all kinds makes that thing feel the way it does. And we're learning a ton about that. You hear a lot about like mirror neurons, this idea that when you're watching a story, you have a thing in your brain that puts yourself into the perspective of the characters so that you're feeling what they're feeling. You know, if you ever watch a movie and you're like, oh, they're in peril, the hero's in peril, but you know you're watching a Disney movie, you know that the hero is going to make it. You, in fact, have seen this movie before. You know they're going to make it, but oh my gosh, they're about to fall off the cliff and you're feeling your gut go because of your mirror neurons, because of your consciousness. It's it's the wildest thing. But I think we're in a really interesting time. It's almost like the scientific revolution, but, but for creators. And I think uh, it's if you will embrace that, there's some really cool things that can happen. And if we look back, I think we can get a sense of what happens in times like these and learn from it and implement some of those ideas in our own creative practice so that we can start to get a hold of this creative magic and kind of have a little bit more control over how to inject it into our creative practice. And so if we look back to a time like um, when electromagnetism was still a cutting edge technology that was not well understood. Magnets, how do they work? That was a time when 
it was seemingly a type of magic. And there were actually magicians back then that used magnets in their act because people didn't know what was going on. There was a guy, uh, Jean Eugene Robert Houdin, uh, who would use magnets, like really intense magnets to make rings levitate. And he would just awe audiences with this otherworldly magic. And it would totally look like he was Luke Skywalker with the force manipulating all of these different things when really, sorry to break it to you, he wasn't using the force at all. It was just magnets. Now, I don't know if it was his dad who told him or who told him, but I'm really glad that somebody pulled little Eric Vice to the side and was like, look, I know you're loving this Robert Houdin magic show, but it's not really magic. It's actually just magnets. Oh, it's not true. I'm glad somebody did that because guess what? Eric Weiss went on to be maybe the greatest magician of all time, naming himself after this magnet musician, magician, Robert Houdin, and named himself after him. You've heard of him, Houdini, right? Like, I'm glad that he didn't just stay within the mystery, but loved the magic enough to want to recreate it himself, to have to know how is this thing done? And you're probably like, look, Okay, whether we have Houdini or not throughout history, it's not really probably that earth-shattering of a thing. But what about people like Isaac, not Brock, but Isaac Newton? Um, well, Isaac Brock, too. I mean, I don't know where I would be without Modest Mouse, but where we'd, we'd all wouldn't even be on the ground if Isaac Newton had it in, haven't invented gravity. <laughs> I, don't remember. That's a, I don't remember what that is, but I feel like there's some uh, a TikTok video of this person who's like... Um, talking about the invention of gravity. I, I don't know. So maybe we'll put it in the show notes, but that's where I took that joke from. I'm a walking footnotes. I I don't want, I got a credit where it's due, um, but uh, where would we be? We'd all be floating off into space without Isaac Newton and, and his principles. And as I was diving into this idea, I was researching like, were there scientists who started in the magical world of alchemy, you know, studying how can you turn basic metals like lead into precious metals like gold. There was a whole obsession with this in so many different cultures. And of course, that's not something you can do. Gold is uh, a basic element. It's its its own thing. It can't break down any further into uh, more basic elements. But... <laughs> Very scientific, in case you know. I know my periodic table somewhat. Gold is AU, I think. And lead is PB. I always think a peanut butter and lead sandwich. Uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> alchemy is not a thing. But a lot of alchemists, through their obsession and through these experiments actually started to pioneer the world of chemistry and Isaac Newton was one of them. But as I was reading, I was kind of fascinated to see that a lot of historians actually think if Isaac Newton had been less obsessed with alchemy, he might've even made bigger contributions to real science. And I think about the alchemists who's, greed or magical thinking or whatever caused them to ignore the discoveries that they're actually making or the discoveries that others around them are making in the field of science and where we might be if they had tapped into that a little more intentionally and let go of all of the magic of making creative gold from nothing. And that's kind of the call of this episode. I don't want to break the illusion. I don't want to, uh, you know, ruin the magic show for you. But it, I don't even want to say that the, it's not a, a, a magical thing. I just want to say, what would it look like if you just put that mindset down for a minute and you started treating the work of your heroes less like alchemy and more like chemistry and deconstructed what are the elements that are coming together to create these more complex chemical reactions within yourself. 
uh, it can be a really powerful shift. Now, I want to say something that is kind of controversial, but it gets uh, it gets at one of the big motivations behind this whole episode. You know, I'm thinking about how there was a primitive mindset in the past that led to a lot of tragedy. You know, I think about way back in the past before we understood weather patterns and, and and why some years are a good harvest and others aren't and all that. We kind of have some better explanations for that that are more accurate. Uh, it's helped us be a little bit less superstitious. And, you know, superstition and magical thinking, there's a degree in which it can be a, at the very least, a metaphorical approach, a mythological approach to understanding the grander, more abstract elements of the dimensions of life that are beyond our primitive brains. And I think when it's left to that realm, it's, it's a really beautiful poetic thing. And I'm not here to tell you what your, your worldview should be uh, by any means, but I think about those uh, ancient civilizations that, you know, did heinous things and hurt themselves and hurt their communities and sacrificed people, sacrificed children to these gods. And I don't think anybody's doing that for crea their creativity, but I was struck by this interview that I caught with Bob Dylan. Um, I think it was 60 minutes. It, it was from probably a couple decades ago. And he was talking about how in his younger life, he was able to do this magical type of writing that he just doesn't have access to anymore. And, you know, I'm not Bob Dylan. It's definitely arrogant for me to think that I have anything to, to even any idea to even share with someone, a great creator like that. Uh, uh, look, he probably, I'm sure he understands it at a level that I don't, but it made me sad to wonder if potentially there is a type of magical thinking going on there, a fixed mindset that is not a sacrifice of youth, but a sacrifice of, uh, older aged creators. You know, I think that there's a lot of this kind of magical thinking that gets us into this state where we feel like the, the magic is all in our past and that there's a, you know, we're not in pro sports. Like your prime is not when you're 25, like your brain is adding information and adding experience and adding technique and ability and, and the mechanics and the chemistry of how these things come together, I really believe. And I think that there are some great examples of this from creators that treat the practice with that kind of, you know, student mentality of learning how all of these pieces come together to create the kind of sensations that they do like well into their later years. Like I think that we could embrace this and this idea that our, our best work is behind us, I even see it. It's such a natural place to go as you start learning about creativity. The more stuff you make, you're inevitably going to learn more about what, what these pieces are doing and what's happening. And as you do that, sometimes you lose some of the happy accidents. Sometimes you get stuck in your head. And I can see that mentality, even in my son and his friend who are like 10 years old. And I, I heard them watching like old silly videos that they'd made like three or four years ago and just being like, man, we were so much funnier back then. And my heart just broke 
because sure, the the mind there's a de- deterioration. There's a there are going to be thing elements about your brain that aren't as quick, or uh, you might lose some potency, or you're gonna you might lose some plasticity in the neuro department as you get older. But I'm looking at these ten year olds saying like our best work is behind us, <laughs> and, and I start thinking, man, if we were able to embrace a little bit of the chemical, the chemistry, the science side of creativity, as much as we do the spiritual, magical side. Could we have creators, you know, making their best work, their most magical work way into their later years? And in the next episode, we're going to talk about uh, why I think as you learn more about what great creative work is all about, why for some people and, and, and in some scenarios, that actually causes you to stumble into analysis paralysis, get stuck in your head, lose your connection to your heart. Like it's happened to me. I totally get it. Uh, but And I feel like I have, uh, from, from research and experience and experiments in my own work, stumbled into some practices that can allow you to not just revert back to mindlessly creating, hoping the muse somehow touches your creative practice, but instead take what you learn and use it in a way that doesn't get you stuck in your head. We're going to talk about that in the next episode. But for now, I just want to talk about what it looks like to put your lab coat on, get into the more chemistry mindset let go of creative alchemy and start practicing in such a way where those incredible experiences, those transcendent moments that you've had consuming other people's work, if you will start to treat them more curiously, if you will t- start to treat them more as a scientist would, trying to break down the atom into these more basic components or this molecule into its various elemental pieces and figure out how do they come together to create that kind of response within your own body. That to me was the entry point for the best work that I've made today, in my opinion. And in fact, the kind of work that I'm making today, I understand a degree of what I'm doing and what I'm trying to achieve to the point where I know if I've made something that I love and I don't even need anybody to validate it because I have a sense of what I'm trying to achieve and if I have achieved it for myself, I don't need, uh, there are pieces that I've made that don't perform that well on Instagram and I'm like, I don't care, it doesn't matter. This was very successful to me. This is exactly what I'm trying to do. And, uh, and, and that's what I'm, uh, that's what I'm doing in this little, uh, lab of my creative process. And sometimes, you know, the opposite happens and I make something I'm like, look, I don't think it's that good, but for some reason, uh, people took to it. That's fine too. Look, it's all part of the process. And, and that kind of hands off, um, mentality is part of how to not get into the analysis paralysis thing, I think. But the point is the turning point for me in my work as a storyteller in, in illustration and, and, and in podcasts and, and, and all the other things I do is, was when I quit perceiving story as this magical thing and I started to see it as a chemical thing. And that journey is the journey I've been on for the past 10 years. And I'm so grateful to uh, past Andy for seeing through the magic and accepting that the only way that I'm going to capture my own kind of magic is to divorce myself from the idea that this is magic in the first place. So let's talk about an activity you can do to start implementing that mindset into your practice and balance out your practice right now. Chapter three, find your creative sensibility through creative magnetic resonance. This is your 
creative call to adventure today. It is a quick activity or action that you can do right now to put these ideas into practice in your own creative practice today. So if you find yourself in a place where the magic of your creative heroes is no longer inspiring you, but causing you to feel less than, feel like there's no chance I can ever be that kind of magic. I've tried everything humanly possible to make my creativity magic to, to find my own wizardry and sorcery and you just can't do it. Instead of letting that lead you to a place of apathy and causing you to give up on making stuff. What if you took that conclusion that says, look, I've done everything that's humanly possible. It must not be humanly possible to be magic. There has to be something else going on here. And when you take that stance, you can say, what's the illusion? What's the trick? What's the chemical reaction happening that is more than the sum of its parts? And the way to approach that creative endeavor with a more scientific approach is using your own scientific machinery of your taste to deconstruct your favorite pieces of work, kind of like a nuclear magnetic resonance machine does. That's a scientific device that can uh, analyze a substance and tell you these are the elements that were in this particular thing. And you have that kind of machine in your own body, and it's called your taste. And it informs your sensibility. You know, taste is a sense. Your creative sensibility is the ability of your senses. And it is, you know, informed by sensory. You know, you might have an eye for pictures, an ear for music, a funny bone for comedy. That's not a real sense. But it is informed by those five senses. But it's more like a sixth sense. Because it's a type of sensitivity to a a, a conscious taking in of stimulus, whether it's an ear for music or an eye for pictures or whatever it is, and you have a deep sensitivity, you have like a tongue within your mind with creative taste buds that has a, you know, whether it's from a personal wound, wound, there's nothing more sensitive than a wound. So maybe the type of art that moves you, it it touches on themes that are hitting on your own personal trauma and that's causing you to be really sensitive. That sensitivity, that those that complexity is able only to be picked up by a complex palette. You know, you must have hypersensitivity to that theme or to that those colors or to this these these chords or notes or you know whatever it is the thing that hits you that resonates that you are most magnetized to those pieces of work are your best hint at finding out what your particular sensitivity is and that sensitivity is like a you know nuclear magnetic resonance machine that can pull apart exactly what's happening here because you're able to taste these particular creative things with so much nuance that you can feel like, oh, that's that piece coming in. Oh, I can taste this bit coming in now. Oh, it's the way that these two things come together at that moment that creates that feeling, that creates that chemical reaction. You know, for me personally, look, I don't don't have a, I love food. I love food. I love that kind of sensory experience. But in my experience, I don't have what's called super taste. So super taste is a thing we talked about in the first episode. It's this thing scientists talk about where, you know, there's a wide variety of sensitivity of uh, taste buds. And that comes from, you know, some people have hundreds of taste buds. Other people have thousands. My father-in-law is, I'm convinced, someone that has thousands of taste buds because when we sit down and drink a beer, like he's picking up on stuff, man, that I just do. He's like... I think that the, uh, the, the, the master brewer here must have had a watch on because I'm getting a metallic kind of flavor picked up through the, like, I don't know, these, these crazy things. And for me, when I taste a beer, my palate's not that sensitive and, and it's kind of either, 
Mmm, that's good. Or, mmm, I don't think I like this one. That's it. Mm, cover all 9,000 taste bud. Aerate it. Warm it up. That top note. Mmm. That's a 10. That's the, that's the nuance that I'm picking up, but he's picking up on Cascade hops and Armarillo and, 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 and Citra and all these different things. And even knows like, it's so sensitive. He knows like what's happening in the nose, the aroma, what's happening at the start, what's happening at the middle, where is it reaching its climax through that process? And then what's the aftertaste and, and, and what does that mean about how it was brewed and when these hops were added and what's the base hop and what's added just for the nose and all that kind of thing. And of course that means that he is actually really good at brewing his own home brews because he has an ability of a sense that can recreate that and, and defines his own creative sensibility. And so what you have to do is start with the things, start with the things that you love the most, that you're magnetically drawn to. The deeper things hit you, the more sensitive you are to those things. And that, that thing is going to tell you, this is my sixth sense. This is my, this is the ability, the super taste of my uh, creative palette. And that's going to help you know what kind of work to create. Now, today we're going to do a call to adventure that is called Creative Magnetic Resonance. Uh, we'll call it CMR for short. Now, it's kind of like a wine testing, but on a scientific level. So, like I mentioned, there's this nuclear magnetic resonance machine that can take a substance and it kind of pulls out what are the, the magnetic forces within certain atoms and it can tell you like this is made up of these molecules and it can break it down. And if the things that you're magnetically resonant with, you can do the same thing with. And so what I want you to do is use that sensitivity and I want you to go through these steps. The first step is gather a handful of your favorite creations that magnetically resonate with you at the deepest levels in ways that you cannot explain. And ultimately, we're going to try to explain it because you're going to get a lot of information about how these things are working on you if you will approach it that way. So. First step, step one to the creative magnetic resonance activity, the CMR, is you're going to collect handful to 10 uh, of pieces of work within the medium that you create in from other people and that, that pull at you at the deepest unexplainable levels that you have that magnetic relationship to. Step two is you're going to identify the few bits that you love the most about these things, the parts of these pieces that hit you on the deepest level. If you're a uh, visual artist, you might take these pictures and look at them and be like, and just study the composition, study the different parts, like break it down into smaller pieces and say like, which area in this is the thing that's magnetically pulling me to this piece? And it's probably going to be a chemical reaction. It's not going to be just one thing. It's not going to be just red. It might be red and purple. Like for me, when I was doing this process and I was trying to develop my own color palette in my work for my style. I collected all the pieces of work that I loved of other people throughout history that were employing color in a way that felt moving to me on this, on this level. And I started to look through them and break them down into smaller bits and be like, where is the thing that I'm attracted to with this color? And then after that, uh, I would take notes of like, okay, these are the colors in this piece, that color in that piece, these are the colors in that piece. That's step three. Take each one like you're a, a connoisseur of wine, like you've got a little worksheet at the vineyard and they're saying, write something down about the nose, write something down about the color, write something down about the texture. Like go through. When I did that for the color, I would say, okay, this one's got purple, red, pink, green. This one's got orange, yellow, pink, blue. This one's got, you know, all that kind of thing. And then step four is to compare and look for patterns. What I found, especially at that time, 
kind of changed over time, actually, which is, is normal. Your taste buds change even creatively as you experience life and, and, and develop and grow. You're, you're, what, what does it for you when you're younger isn't going to do it for you when you're older necessarily. And so back then when I was first starting to intentionally develop a color palette for my work, I noticed that almost all of these things I loved were you know, 75% warm colors and then 25% cool colors. And I just started using that as a chemical recipe for the stuff that I made. In fact, I even noticed other things like uh, the, the warm colors were usually like just slightly different shades of the same color and it created kind of a faux gradient effect that had a digital high definition look, but was actually created from an analog, you know, simple color palette. And so all kinds of things like that you're trying to pick up. If you're a musician, you can do kind of what I do with talks and, and, and comedians and, and people of that nature. Listen back through those 10 songs and then watch, you know, observe yourself observing this music and start picking out, like think of your uh, taste uh, and your heart and, and your mind as this magnet and just see in, as the music goes, what is, when is it happening where your attention and passion for this thing is most magnetic and really pulled into the song and then isolate that and say, what's going on here? What's going on before this? Because those are the, those are the elements that are coming together to create this sensation. I do this for, uh, I do this for talks a lot. Um, people that tell stories. If I find a story that really hits me on a visceral level, I will isolate it in the talk. I'll even do like a screen recording of that podcast or talk or whatever, uh, just to that two minute little story. And I'll just start wine testing. I'll start taking notes on the thing and say, okay, they started with this. Then they started, then they went there and then went the, then they all came together in this piece. Like how, what were the things that they were doing for an analogy? I've learned like a story that works for me is they set up the real problem. They set up the analogy problem and then they say the analogy solution, but that's also the real solution in the same language. And that kind of deconstruction can only happen when you are intentionally breaking things down. And so do that with music, do that with whatever thing you do. You see a lot of comedians that make this shift. It's a, it's a tough shift and we're going to dive in later uh, in the next episode with how to overcome this. But you see people like Chris Rock who started in comedy acting. He was on Saturday Night Live. Like, I mean, this guy got really far for him not to, like when he got fired or left Saturday Night Live, I, I don't know which one it was. So apologies, Chris, if you're listening to this for creative tips, you're, he's not. But uh, when he left Saturday Night Live and things weren't happening for him, it would have been very easy to mythologize that journey and just try to, you know, get your creative spell book out and try to make the universe manifest that reality again. But he didn't do that because in, in a lot of ways he was like, there's a lot of luck going on there that I don't have any control over. And so instead what he did is he started to get out his chemistry book and he started to Figure out how can you be funny on purpose every single time as you get on stage. And he got into the lab of the stand-up comedy rooms and he just started experimenting until he became a stand-up comedy legend that he is today. And you see this over and over and over again. But what happens is there's a lot of people that get stuck in between those phases because as you start to make creativity cerebral, if you open that door, it can jack up your practice in a little bit in a little way uh, if you're not careful with how you integrate this into your process. If you are careful, I think it is the determining factor for a massive leveling up of your creativity. But we'll talk about that next time. For now, all I want you to do is start taking a more 
chemical approach to your practice. Let your palate, that sensitivity, become your creative sensibility that is a type of magnet that will magnetize to true north for you. And when you lose your way, you can go back to that inner compass, to that inner magnet that will show you, like, go this way. And in fact, if you're really stuck, I think we'll go back to something we said in last episode, which is sometimes the easiest way to find your true north is to find south because your taste, the most sensitive part of your creative palette, isn't unlike a magnet. In that if you want to find which way the magnet goes, you can actually probably find out easier when it repels. Because the things that really repel you, that disgust you, the the kinds of creative work that just make you feel ill, they can tell you just as much, if not more, about your creative palette as the things that you love. So if finding, collecting the things you love isn't working, do this whole step one through four all over again. Instead, collect 10 things that you absolutely despise and just start picking those things apart because you're going to do that anyway. You've probably done it a hundred times and there's so much good information there. If you won't stay there and you'll flip it on its head. Creative pep talk is partially listener supported. We couldn't keep the lights on with this whole endeavor if it wasn't for our patrons at patreon.com slash creative pep talk. Thank you so much for supporting the show week in and week out. Really appreciate it. If you're able to afford a couple bucks per episode, it really, really makes a difference. You know, there's a lot of hidden fees to having a podcast every single week and there's a lot of time and effort from a, a team of people that make this thing happen we really really appreciate it if you can't afford to back the show financially please don't this is a uh, supposed to be a gift it is a thing that's supposed to help you not hinder you but if you do want to help the show but you can't do so with money the thing that helps us the most is just people sharing it with friends and creators that they know will get something from it. So if you got something from this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you would send a text to a friend, post it in stories, you know, send it in a DM to somebody who you think could use a little pep in their step. We 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 see all that stuff. Well, we don't I mean, we don't see your direct messages. We're not hacking your accounts, but when you share it publicly, we, we see it. We we really appreciate it and uh this whole show is made possible. You know, we're able to be a top 50 arts podcast on, on Apple podcast because of people like you doing that. So, um, if you want to support the show, we, we really appreciate, um, all the help we can get, getting it out there and, and getting it to creators that need a little pick me up. Massive shout out to Yoni Wolf and the band Y for our theme music and soundtrack. Thanks to Connor Jones of Pending Beautiful for editing the show and for sound design. And uh, massive thanks to Ryan Appleton, Katie Chandler, and Sophie Miller for podcast assistance of all kinds. I uh, couldn't do it without you guys. And um, yeah, thanks to everybody for listening. And until we speak again, stay pepped up. Stay pepped up.